Hey Changemaker, it's Julia Wicklander here, and I am beyond excited to welcome you back to a brand new season of the Hey Changemaker podcast. If you've been with us from the start, you already know that this podcast is all about connecting with inspiring activists, advocates, entrepreneurs, and changemakers who are dedicated to making the world a better place. These incredible individuals remind us that hope isn't just a word. It's a powerful force that can drive real change. You might recall that this podcast began as my personal lifeline, a source of inspiration and strength for my journey as a changemaker. And guess what? It's grown far beyond that. Now it's a lifeline for changemakers all over the globe. We're here to uplift one another, create solidarity, and amplify our collective efforts towards those critical goals we hold dear. These are turbulent times we're living in, no doubt about it. But through it all, we remain committed to this podcast as a beacon of hope and inspiration. Together, we'll shine a light on the issues that matter most, gender equality, human rights, social justice, and sustainability, and the people that are driving progress. These topics are not just important, they're essential for our shared and common future. So get ready for another season filled with incredible stories, enlightening conversations, and most importantly, the unwavering belief that change is possible. Remember, it all starts with hope, inspiration, and solidarity. And that's what we're here to provide. Thank you so much for being a part of the Hey Changemaker podcast community. We can't wait to embark on this new journey with you, continuing to inspire, educate, and empower each other along the way. Today, we have a remarkable guest who has dedicated her life to making a difference in the most challenging circumstances. Joining us is Arij Abdelmajid Abbas, a Sudanese doctor and public health professional with over five years of experience in the field of sexual and reproductive health and rights. Arij's journey has now led her to the front lines of a war zone where she's working tirelessly to anticipate vulnerability and respond to the health emergencies in Sudan. Arij is not just a healthcare worker. She is a fierce advocate against gender-based violence, child marriage, and female genital mutilation. She's been on the forefront of more than five national campaigns fighting for the sexual and reproductive health and rights of women and young people in underserved communities. In recognition of her incredible work, Arij was named one of the 16 most influential women tackling sexual and reproductive health and rights in Sudan in 2020. She is also an alumnus of the Noble Women Laureates Program in Canada and a Mandela Washington Fellowship alumnus. Arij joins me in the Girls Globe Solidarity Studio at the Women Deliver Conference in Rwanda. She embarked on a harrowing six-day journey to even reach the conference due to the suspension of flights from Sudan and the complete closure of airports in the country during a time of war. 
There's so much to be said, but it's hard to find the words to describe the horror, agony, and loss that the Sudanese population has endured since the beginning of the war on April 15th, 2023. To put things in perspective, according to uh, UN OCHA, over 3 million people are internally displaced across 18 states in Sudan due to the ongoing war. And among them, about 2.2 million have fled from Khartoum state alone. Furthermore, approximately 880,000 people have fled the conflict into neighboring countries, seeking refuge from the violence. And as if that's not devastating enough, over 20.3 million people in Sudan, which is over 42% of the population, are facing high levels of food insecurity between July and September this year. UNICEF reports that 1.7 million children have been displaced, with 690,000 children now struggling with malnutrition and in desperate need of treatment. Additionally, the Combating Violence Against Women unit in Sudan has documented 60 cases of sexual violence as of August 8th, without adequate access to psychosocial support or trauma-informed care. It's important to remember that these numbers were obtained by humanitarian aid workers, and given the unstable situation across the country, they may increase exponentially and rapidly. Today, Arij Abdelmajid Abbas will share her experiences and insights on this heart-wrenching situation. It's a conversation that needs to be heard. It's with so much gratitude that I can share this conversation with you. We delve into the challenges and resilience of the Sudanese population during these trying times. And we hear Arij share a part of her own story. Thank you for being here. Arij Abbas, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I would love for you to take the opportunity to introduce yourself. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So my name is Arija Abbas. Uh, I'm a practicing doctor from Sudan. I'm a public health professional working around reproductive sexual health and rights and also maternal adolescent health as well. Um, and I'm here with the Noble Women Initiative as part of the delegation for the Women Deliver 2023 conference. Mm, yeah. Yes. And we're recording this in the Girls Globe Solidarity Studio, and we're so happy that you are here um, to, to share about the, the, you know, the stories of the people in Sudan and, and the situation there that is so overlooked. Um, so can you perhaps share a little bit about what the situation is now for health professionals like yourself? Um, <laughs> let's start first how I got here. Yeah, yeah. So basically, it took me six days to get to Kigali mm. uh, because every, um, okay, since that war, I'm going to state it as a war, it's not a conflict anymore. It's a yeah. civil war for us, like innocent civilians. Mm. Since the war broke out in the 50, on the 15th of April, 2023, um, like millions and hundreds and thousands of people like fled Khartoum, like seeking refugee seeking 
safety fleeing for their own lives either to the neighboring countries or being internally displaced within Sudan so me and my family we fled to the northern states to the river nile state specifically uh we were privileged enough to have a house there but most of the people are not so they are taking residency in schools and with their relatives whatsoever so uh i think it's been very hard for public health professionals doctors and non medical personnel as well um so for me it was just like everyone else the suffering is still the same mm. uh most of the like most of the board i'm not going to talk about the borders let's talk about like the airplanes and the airport being destroyed and everything so there is no way going out of sudan by airplanes except port sudan airport and then the border with egypt and the border with south sudan and the border with ethiopia so i came through the border of ethiopia driving until i reached gondor and then from there to addis ababa and then from here to kigali mm. so it was a very long journey mm. very dangerous but i wanted to be here i wanted to be here to see how people uh post conflict are dealing with their issues especially in rwanda like i want to i wanted to reflect on the rwandan experience mm-hmm. basically that's it mm. and how has your experience been so far from that have you you know received any any learnings or anything that you will take back very traumatizing to be honest mm. because the rwandan since their issues and their war and the genocide in 1994 they put a cease to it and then they con- they continued forward mm. but with the sudan issues right now there is an ongoing conflict still right now yeah. happening in khartoum and happening in darfur mm. and like there is no end to it i cannot see end to it without negotiations like mm. everyone there is no winning mm. side Mm. and the only people who are going to be harmed are innocent civilians and they are being harmed yeah so much so much destruction happened mm. it's just like beyond comprehension mm. so before we start even looking at you know whatever solutions you see um can you talk a little bit about the situation in in Khartoum um in Sudan today So basically when I came to this conference I thought I'm going to be the only Sudanese woman mm. girl here. Mm. And I, I felt so lonely and I was telling this to my delegation and I'm like nobody's going out of Sudan right now and I'm going back to my family mm. and they were like why are you going back nobody's going back to Sudan whoever yeah. is going out they are staying out yeah. and I'm like I cannot just leave my family behind for so many several reasons a lot of mm. people are being stuck in Sudan for that specific reason mm. the situation right now so basically according to the latest statistics there are more than 3 million people are being displaced inside mm. sudan and outside sudan mm. most of them are going to egypt um some of them are bordering to the gulf area and some of them are just like seeking asylums everywhere so the inhabitants of khartoum syria are 6 million mm. like more than half of the inhabitants are going out and i think i i think it's more than that because the statistics are not really accurate yeah because you cannot actually go into khartoum right now mm. there is no reporting there is no statistics there is no um confirmed news from khartoum right now it's mm. just like people telling each other yeah basically mm. um and the international situation basically i'm going to talk about 
the violations for human rights, there are a lot of violations. Mm. But according to the Unit for Combating Gender-Based Violence, specifically against women, mm. there are more than 57 recorded cases of rape. Mm. They are recorded, let alone the non-recorded ones. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like heartbreaking mm. that these women might not be receiving the care, the immediate clinical care, let alone the psychosocial support mm. they might need, mm. um, let alone the robbery, the violations for human rights, uh, the physical harm, the mm. killing. There are thousands. I'm not sure of the number exactly, but I think there are more than a thousand and something mm. cases of reported death. I'm mm. going to make sure of the number because I don't want to say any... Yeah, yeah. Um, not true and figures. And I'm sure that those figures will grow as, you know, before this podcast is published as well. So Definitely. And also right now, like Sudan is uh, in the face of the, rain, of the rainy season. Mm. So more catastrophe and more displacement yeah. are there on the horizon. But it's so hard to think about the rainy season when you have people's lives are just going away. Mm. Um so when I came here, I thought I'm the only Sudanese girl who came from Sudan to attend this conference. Mm. So I found other five Sudanese women. Amazing. But they came all from abroad. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, Arij, how was your journey? And I mm. told them it took me six days to get here. Yeah. And they were like, their first response, I swear to you, their first response, I was like, they were like, of course, you're not coming back. You're not going back. Mm. I'm like, yes, I'm okay. going to go back because... It's not easy just to go out and I have to get my family yeah. out before doing that kind of a decision. Mm. So when we were talking, everyone were talking about the robbery for their house, for their positions. Like there is massive robbery right now in Khartoum, mm. whether for the militia or unknown personnel or whatsoever. Um, so basically, when I met the Sudanese girl, so... I was talking to my delegation mm. and I was like, you guys, I'm super happy. I met this Sudanese woman and she's super amazing. And she came to me and she was like, because of your scarf, you look Sudanese. Mm. And I'm like, are you Sudanese? And we just started crying. Yeah. We cried our hearts out. Mm. I think we disturbed our neighbors. Mm. And then there was a girl in the row behind me. Mm. She was like, are you Sudanese? And I'm mm. like, yes, I am. Mm. She was like, me too. So mm. we started chatting about what we lost and what we are still going to lose in the future. And she said something that struck me very hard and, it's feel, and it feels very true. She was like, the world abandoned us. Mm. And I'm like, so fast. And she said, like, exactly, so fast. so fast. Sudan was trending on the media for about three weeks. Mm. And then everyone just like, no, it's happening mm. in another part of the world. So it's not very concerning to mm. us. Yeah. It's just like how the international media, mm. how the world abandoned the Sudanese case mm. and like the misery and the catastrophes that mm. are happening there mm. is just mind blowing. Yeah. And it's, I, I'm, I'm, it brings me back to uh, actually um, the sort of uprisings that and what happened in, in Sudan in 2019, right, in June. Um, that was actually, I was at a Women Deliver conference at the time in, in Vancouver. Vancouver. Okay. And there were a few Sudanese who lost communication with their family and were very, you know, upset. And, and of course, that gained um, international media attention, but it was 
for three days, right? It was, you know, a short amount of time that the, the international media um, really held that attention. And I think it's this sort of the same that's happening now. We heard, you know, what was happening in April and immediately afterwards, um, but few people are still, you know, hearing about what's going on um, in Sudan. And I, I think, of course, there is, you know, so much, uh, so much to talk about there in terms of who's in charge of of the big media corporations and big tech and, and so on and and similarly similarly the crisis that has been happening for so long in Ethiopia that has just been entirely ignored. But I would you know I I want to acknowledge that and that we really want to sort of amplify these stories and do what we can. Um, but uh, but yeah, I would love for you to then talk about sort of now. Um, since sort of the international media left, how has that impacted the the lives um, for you know the people that are left in Sudan and that you have decided as you have decided to stay? I think it can it can be looked upon from the diff from different angles. Like for example, right now humanitarian access in Sudan is very challenging mm. uh, during May and June as well, but nobody's shining a light on that. Mm. For example, Sudan is harboring 46 million uh, population. Yeah. Right now, 24.7 are in need of humanitarian assistance. Mm. That's half the population of the country. Yeah. But nobody's actually, are those needs are being met? Mm. Basically by every nonprofit uh, organization, every organization working in the humanitarian sector. Um, like, also, like, there are three parts of the cartoon, there are three parts of three parts of Sudan who are like, which are the conflict is taking place right now, mm -hmm. which are Khartoum, Kurdufan, and Darfur states. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about Darfur because it's been an ongoing mass killing since 2013 mm. since the beginning of uh, the rapid support forces like they were initiated in 2013 by the president of the past regime mm. uh Omar al-bashir um but right now i think the issue is what the international media can shine light on is providing humanitarian access yeah. and even opening safe routes for humanitarian workers to work because nobody when i see when i say nobody Nobody can enter Khartoum right now. Yeah. And we're not going to even talk about the high inflation rates. Mm. We're not going to even talk about sexual reproductive health and rights services, even during emergencies. Mm. Needs are not being met. Yeah. Um, we're not going to talk about there's a cease for the academic year. There is no university that's being opened in Khartoum. Most of the students are trying to get their transcripts to transfer. And I think the international media can help both Sudanese outside Sudan mm. in facilitating their transition to new places, to new relocations, mm. and also inside Sudan by shining light to the violations and getting the respective donors or the respective working agencies mm. to take the appropriate action. Yeah. I'm not, uh, so basically, it, so it affected every sector, mm. but in the health sector, people, all the time on social media are asking about life-saving medications, mm -hmm. people who are stuck in Khartoum, where they can find it, 
but there is no working pharmacy. Like mm-hmm. there are pharmacies, but life-saving medications are actually very few in the capital right yeah. now. People are being trapped inside Khartoum because they cannot afford to go out. Mm-hmm. The renting, the renting uh, prices became impossibly high. You mm-hmm. cannot afford to live outside Khartoum right now. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. So people who went to the states and I cannot afford to stay, they are staying in public places yeah. like schools and universities mm-hmm. and whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I think at least, at least the international media should line should shine light on the fact that humanitarian work in mm. Sudan right now, especially especially like targeting women, mm. targeting women and young girls, adolescents and children, mm. should need needs a lot of work. Yeah. Needs a lot of work. Like for mm. example, um, delivery cases, pregnancy cases, rape cases, are they being uh, tackled properly? Yeah. Are, there is no statistics. Mm. Like I went to work and I worked since I I came out of Khartoum. So I worked in Adbara Hospital. It's like the the main hospital of Nahran Nil or like the River Nile State. The amount of influx of population is beyond what the hospital can manage. Yeah, it's beyond their infrastructure mm. because in Sudan, unfortunately, I have to say this, there was a centralization of mm. everything, health system infrastructure, social and developmental industry infrastructure. Mm. And I think, uh, I think this was a very hard lesson to learn mm. that infrastructure and services should not be centralized yeah whether health education health education mm. whatsoever mm. uh i hope that the war would stop so at least it's gonna be so at least it would be a lesson learned yeah, yeah. but right now it's just so frustrating mm. it's it's even beyond frustrating to yeah. be honest and in the sort of peace peace building space mm. i mean just as you know here there have been you know peace activists from from various countries from liberia from uh, across the world um how is the role of of women in those spaces right now in sudan they're trying their best Mm. but they don't have the capacity to work Mm. because there is no platform even to work so since I got here, my delegation has a psychologist every morning. Mm. Every morning I would burst in crying mm. because I didn't have the space to reflect chair for the past three months and mm. they were horrible. Yeah. And everyone would be like silent. Mm. Let her reach her of her space. Yeah. It was so much for everyone to comprehend. And to be honest, I think not as a Sudanese, people living in the Horn of Africa generally, are dismissing mental health so much mm. and we're dismissing trauma care, trauma-informed care, yeah. and we're actually dismissing collective care. Mm. And it's like, um, it's on our mind all of the time. Mm. We don't even feel it, but it's affecting our lives negatively Yeah, every day, mm. every day. Mm. And that's why when I, f- when I came here, it's just like a dam being broken. Yeah. So when I say like, most of the mental health services right now 
are being provided to the uh, like to the like violations survivors yeah. i'm not going to say victims they went through the experience and they came out of it yeah. so most of the psychosocial support is being done to that but the rest of the population mm. i don't think so i think they're just basically in a nutshell mm. suffering in silence yeah so there is a lot of taboos misconceptions mm. about gender based violence specifically mm. for women yeah. like be, uh according to the statistics by the UN one in every three women are being violated worldwide yeah. this percentage increase in conflict affected areas and humanitarian areas even mm. during the covid yeah. when people were in lockdown mm. so can you imagine what's happening right now in sudan mm. where there is practically nothing yeah. everything is on hold mm. no industry no infrastructure everyone is relocating health personnel are convey are converting to another hospitals are converting to another other health centers across the states mm. trying trying to refresh those hospitals mm. and do some kind of the complicated procedures there whether for surgery or medical consultation or whatsoever mm. and i told you like most of the infrastructure health infrastructure was in khartoum yeah so even for us as sudanese is kind of new mm. and uh not being recognized or not being acknowledged or being forgotten mm. is just something that mm. because a lot of things happen in the world right now Ukraine Russia and everything it's so sad mm. to see that we're not acknowledged enough no let alone the the access the help Mm. the assistance whatsoever mm. just shining a light to yeah. it with open routes for so much help mm. even ones that we don't know about yeah yeah i think it's so we're sitting in a space that we're calling the solidarity studio and i think what you're describing is so far from solidarity yeah. um and what you're experiencing is so far from solidarity and it uh, it is heartbreaking um so i would love for you to just share what what solidarity would look like for you um i experienced solidarity to be honest i okay. experienced it at this conference with my mm -hmm. delegation uh when they were like abid there is a space for sharing and healing it was very traumatizing and it was very frightening i didn't want to go mm -hmm. because it's very foreign for me to talk about things mm -hmm. that i've been through mm -hmm. it's not because I was very I was raised in a very open household but my environment was not really stimulating to share mm -hmm. so we it's just like pent up anger frustration sadness being heartbroken and whatsoever so that's why when I went there and I shared it was earth moving mm -hmm. to say the least when I cried everyone because I was I was this bubbly persona always sharing uh, always laughing always making everyone laugh always checking up on everyone so when i started crying they were so shocked mm. or like you were hiding all of this mm. and uh, and i consider myself privileged to be honest i consider myself pri privileged than a lot of people having access knowing what to do getting shelter and whatsoever mm. and having the right education and having the means to do some things and getting out of the country not everyone is privileged that i am so 
sometimes I feel like my privilege is preventing me from just actually complaining. Mm. But it felt so good to cry. It felt so good to cry. And I just felt the kind of reassurance that you're not alone. We're here with you if you need anything. Like, it's just like the sisters. Mm. We, we were practically sisters. Uh, and it's, um, it's kind of moving knowing that there are millions of girls mm. who are not going to experience this. Mm. And um, most of them are having depression, anxiety episodes, post-traumatic stress disorders, and they're not being acknowledged. Mm. And if they started complaining about it, they would be like, oh, shut up. Everyone is going through this. Yeah. You're not alone. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Words cannot describe. No. Words cannot describe no. what's happening. Mm. Basically, that's it. Yeah. A lot to be said, but at the same time, no enough words can describe. Yeah. Like right now, when I was talking to one of the Sudanese girls here, I met and she was like, I read, let alone psychosocial support, let alone mental health, let alone well-being and collective care and trauma-informed care. People, physical health is being harmed mm. people physical health their life their actual life mm. is in danger mm. how are we going to counter that mm. so it's just like right now you're just looking at the bare minimum mm. because because you cannot afford to look at the big picture mm. Mm. so as you've taken this long and dangerous journey to get here um there is something driving you for peace, for a brighter future. What brings you hope in all of this heartbreak? What 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 brings you hope? To be honest, um, when I looked at the Rwandan history, so we went to the genocide memorial. Mm. Uh, so I know a lot about Rwanda, um, but it was the first time actually witnessing the history. So when the so the the tour guide was like. There is some very sensitive pictures here. If you are feeling any time that you are feeling suffocated, you can go out. There is no pressure. And I was insisting on seeing them. When I saw them, I started shaking. Mm. And they stopped the tour because I started crying. Because most of the pictures I saw on the video from the genocide are some of the most scenes I saw on my way fleeing out of Khartoum. It, it was like just a deja vu. So I was like, are we going to get here? Can Sudan ha ha like afford to come back like Rwanda? Mm. And I was in doubt. Yeah. And that what made me so sad. Mm. Because Rwanda had to come back after they stopped killing each other. Mm. Or like after they stopped the genocide. Right now there is no... There is no, the words is still there. Yeah. So that's why I cannot see what's beyond that. Mm. But if the words stopped, I think there is a huge hope for the Sudanese population to come back again, mm. especially if there is a civilian rule. Mm. Like for example, the war started because the army led by Al-Burhan and the rapid support forces led by uh, um, clashed over the power mm. who's gonna have the power for so many reasons for so many political reasons mm. 
everyone had their own claims. But the one fact that is proved throughout nations, you cannot have two military forces within one country. Mm. It's a it's a recipe for chaos mm. whatsoever. We're not going to delve a lot into politics, mm. but I think it's a process. Like the counselor yesterday when I started crying, and I was like, mm. can we do that? Can we come back? She was like, Rwanda went through a, through a process. Mm. So I think it's going to be the same for Sudan. Mm. It's going to be through a process, but it needs national and international action. Mm. Not just that, it needs immediate action, mm. rapid response yeah. from every sector out there that's mm. working in the assistance or in the health mm. department. Yeah. It needs collective action, mm. then it needs to be like, um, maybe I'm gonna say like collective cluster working, mm. need working on every aspect of life. Yeah, But it needs to be, Something like that. Yeah. Because mm. I'm at a loss of words. Yeah. And, in, and and immediately now. I yes. mean from from I mean it has to happen now, not a minute later. And of course we we need to take our part in, in pushing the international community as well to make sure that the humanitarian aid that is so desperately needed can reach the country. It's like I'm not gonna say that there is nothing happening right now. Mm. But how are we going to accelerate this, basically? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that there are organizations that are not working. They are doing an amazing job, actually. But how is it going to be a holistic response, mm. a more fast response, tackling every side of life, from the clinical aspect to the non-clinical aspect, to the basic life needs, mm. food, water, and shelter, to the climate crisis, to the rainy season that we're going to experience very soon, mm. mid-July mid to the end of August. Mm. So that's why a lot of factors should be in consideration when you are tackling intervention in a very complex country like Sudan. Mm. But in a nutshell, there is hope. Mm. There is hope. But for the hope to be a, rea a reality, it needs a lot of work. Yeah. It needs a lot of work, and I don't know are people going to intervene properly or not? Mm. Yeah. Basically, that's it. Mm. Arij, thank you so much for joining me in the Solidarity Studio for being so brave to come to this conference and to come to this space, being so brave to share your voice and, and your story and, and going back, not giving up. Um, I try my best. No. To be honest, it was super hard coming here and talking mm. about Sudan. But I thought, why not talking about it? Mm. Why? Uh, it is a reality. Mm. It is a fact. Mm. And it's happening no matter how breaking, right. how much of violations, how, how many violations are there, mm. but they should be there. Yeah. People should know about it so they can know what to do at mm. least, mm. even from a very, very primitive perspective. Mm. Yeah. of a healthcare worker working mm. on some part of the country. Mm. Yes. So thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Mm. Thank yes. you. Very you are very sweet. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this deeply moving episode of the Hey Changemaker podcast. 
A huge thank you to Arij Abdulmajid Abbas for sharing her incredible journey and insights with us today. Her courage and dedication are truly inspiring. As we conclude, I want to leave you with three important reminders. First, let's not forget the people of Sudan and their ongoing struggle. Continue supporting or consider starting to support organizations and initiatives that provide humanitarian aid to those affected by the war and conflict. Your contribution can make a significant difference. Secondly, take a moment to reflect on your own role as changemaker. What causes are close to your heart and how can you contribute to positive change? It's not always about grand gestures. Even small actions can have a big impact. And finally, stay engaged with the Hey Changemaker podcast. Subscribe uh, at girlsglobe.org changemaker. And that's also where you can listen to older episodes and share your thoughts and insights on um, various conversations that we've had. And continue to be a part of this podcast community. Together, we can inspire and up uplift one another to create a better world. Thank you so much for being a part of this journey with us. Positive change has already begun. Until next time, remember, you are the change you wish to see in the world. Ciao.